when I think of compassion um, and how I show it, I always say I like to love the unlovable. Um, so for me, it's trying to show compassion to people who are least likely to be able to show any or show love to people that are least likely to show any love in return. Um, and it's not because they're being obstinate or mean, although that might feel that way to me. It's more likely that they're just like so hurt or angry or despondent or hopeless that they they just like literally aren't capable of giving anything in return. If like they have like same thing going on like that you had at one point, don't like tell them your story like or anything like that. Just like listen to theirs and if they want advice, then give them advice. A lot of times when people have never had compassion in their lives, they have, they have lived a life of always struggling, of having maybe a horrible home life and they're just suspicious of of people they really don't know what it is to 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 love others unconditionally um, sometimes that's where compassion in my opinion lies at the best is where you can show not only you do something for someone but you show them how compassion really looks and 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 hope that that person would see that and say okay not everybody in the world is out for something or not everybody in the world is out to hurt me a lot of times people think you got to be something big. No, a lot of times it's just the little stuff. You, little stuff you don't even think about. You just do because you, you, you would want that too. And so you do that for someone and then you see the change. And it's the little stuff a lot of times. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, these videos that start off each week are some of us in here our own friends, our own loved ones who are sharing with us their thoughts on what compassion means and what compassion looks like in our world. And that is what this series is all about, embodied compassion of looking at the person of Jesus and how he embodies this character of God, specifically in this form of compassion, of this deep love and care for all of us and how we can then embody that as well um, as this defining trait of who God is, of who Jesus Christ is. Um, So as we look at these stories of Jesus embodying compassion, I want us to also have in our minds, what does this mean for me? What does this look like in my daily life when I leave this room, when I leave this group of people? What does compassion, as Jesus uh, defines it, what does that compassion look like? Would you all stand with me now? And we are going to read some scripture because... That's more important than any of my words. Um, So let's look to this story of Jesus from Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. As Jesus and his disciples were going out of Jericho, a large crowd followed him. When two blind men sitting along the road heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Show us mercy, Lord, son of David. Now the crowd scolded them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted even louder, Show us mercy, Lord, son of David. Jesus stopped in his tracks and called to them, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, we want to see, they replied. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they were able to see and they followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So... <clears throat> These two blind fellows, 
They are sitting on the road, the side of the road, just outside of Jericho. And Jesus and his followers, they are on their way to Jerusalem for this festival of Passover, um, for this celebration, for this party. And Jesus has just recently told his 12 disciples, his closest followers, he's just recently told them that while they're in Jerusalem, some things are going to be happening. First of all, he'll be handed over to the chief priests, to the legal experts. Um, They will find him to be guilty. They will condemn him to death. They will pass him off to others who will then mock him and beat him and crucify him. But then on the third day, he will return from the dead. And he has just shared this with his disciples for not the first time. Um, So they at least somewhat know, or at least they've heard a couple of times what is going to happen, what uh, they are stepping into when they make it to Jerusalem. Um, But they are on their way. What's first on their mind is this Passover festival that they are they're heading to this celebration, this feast and his followers, Jesus's followers knew that this party was coming. They're excited to get there. And if any of you have ever prepared for a party, I know there's in, is it two weeks? Yeah. In two weeks, there's a pretty big party on a Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. Anybody, how many of you are planning to watch Super Bowl? Yeah. Okay. That's less hands than I expected. Uh, But anyways, if you've ever prepared for a party or anticipated a party, there's a lot of excitement that comes with that, right? They are excited. They are anticipating this celebration. And Jesus, while understanding that that is coming, he also knows that these are kind of his last days. He is is coming into this time of suffering and death. And he is faithful and committed to get to Jerusalem. But before this group of people who have very... Uh, diverse emotions about this coming time before they even make it to Jerusalem um, where everybody's going to be shouting Hosanna and laying down their coats and palm branches and all of that. Um, we have this story that I feel like as I was preparing for this, I was like, man, I feel like this story is often forgotten about. Um, but we have this story of, of two blind guys who are sitting on the road um, just outside of Jericho and blindness in that time, there was a certain social stigma to it. Um, and I think, regrettably, a lot of us, if we were honest, would say that that is still the case. But these men, they were social outcasts. They were um, religious outcasts. They were pushed to the margins of society. They were um, in danger in some ways because of this disability that they had. Because they would have been unable to support themselves. They would have been unemployed They would have often, many of them would have been begging outside because they did not have a way to support themselves. And begging at this time wasn't always a safe activity. They could easily be um, manipulated and in physical danger. And this road from Jericho to Jerusalem was a common roadway for um, highway robbers and and the lot to be um, taking advantage of those who were unable to see. And there's this story of the Roman emperor. Uh, he was famous for his temper. And one time in a, in a fit of rage, he accidentally stabbed one of his servants in the eye. And after he had kind of calmed down, he went back to his servant. He said, you know, he's ashamed. He says, I'm sorry. Um, is there anything I can do to make this up to you? And the servant basically says, I just wish I had my eye back. It's like, there is, there is something about... Um, 
a lack of sight that is uh, permanent to a certain extent. We have a lot of technology these days that allows us to um, see even if we have if we are visually impaired, I have some pretty thick glasses that I wear usually um, and contacts. But at this time and even still in our day, um, there is a high value and desire that is placed on being able to see. And these blind men likely were not alone in their desire to be healed of blindness. There were probably many more, Uh, but they still had other senses, right? They could still hear, they could still kind of sense this excitement surrounding Jesus. And in this passage, they are able to identify who is passing by. It's not just some random guy, whether they heard bits and pieces of conversations or whatever the case may be, they know that this is Jesus who is passing by. This Jesus who is the, as they call him, the son of David, They are blind, but they know who this is who is passing by, and they cry out to him. And I think it's always an interesting practice for us as we read scripture um, and as we read these biblical stories to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of all of the different characters, right? To to try on and and try to to do this thinking practice of, of what would this have been like if I was this person in the story? And it's I think it's very easy to put ourselves in the shoes, uh, the sandals of uh, the good people in the story, right? The protagonists of the story. It's easy to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are being faithful to God, who are winning victories because of God, who are doing all of these things, right? It's it's real easy to put ourselves in their shoes. And it's even to a certain extent easy for us to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus, it's a little bit more challenging maybe of saying like, how could I be more like Jesus in this way in my reactions to these people? But it's still kind of easy to put ourselves in his shoes. I think what is difficult is to put ourselves in the shoes of the characters who are in the wrong or who are the ones failing or being maybe called out by Jesus. And in this story, I would say a lot of us fall into this category of the crowds, Throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, throughout the Gospels, um, there is kind of this very specific way in which they categorize followers of Jesus. They have, they use the, the word disciples or followers. They also use the word crowds. And this word crowds is, it's very general. Um, but the, the distinction between these two groups is, is pretty distinct, Right? Um, There are those who are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, who are truly following Jesus, allowing Jesus to speak into their lives and transform who they are. And then there are the crowds. And when we see this word, the crowds, that is just, these people are just trailing along behind Jesus, right? They're just getting dusty from his walking. They're not necessarily hearing what he's teaching and and doing something about it, um, but they are just following him. And so when, when the gospel authors use this word crowds, um, it's intentional. It's a way of saying to us, what group are we in? Are we followers or are we in the crowd? And the crowd in this story doesn't seem to really catch what Jesus is doing here. We're not told exactly, um, we're not told why exactly, um, but they scold these men. They, they tell them to be quiet. They say, hey, Jesus is busy. Shh. We, 
we're doing something, guys. We're, we're already on our way somewhere. Like, you got yourself into this mess, figure it out yourself, right? The, the idea behind people who had certain physical maladies was that they were viewed as sinful people, as people who had gone against God and were being punished or cursed in some kind of way. And so they're, they're saying, guys, quiet. Jesus, Jesus and all of us are headed to this celebration, to this Passover festival. We don't need to be bothered by you. So they are focused on what they think is most important at that point in time. And they didn't have the time, they didn't have the patience for these blind beggars because they thought that Jesus had better things to do. They, they knew that Jesus had better things to do, right? But they didn't understand what I like to call the holy interruptions of Jesus. These opportunities where Jesus, he, he welcomes interruptions into what he is already doing. He welcomes these opportunities to proclaim the kingdom of God, to show the kingdom of God in very tangible ways. And the the crowd that is following Jesus didn't seem to understand that these types of interruptions typify the kingdom of God. The, The type of community that Jesus came to establish is one that is grounded in compassion one that is grounded in this love and this care for all people, regardless of physical limitations, regardless of religious or social standing. The kingdom of God is for all people. And this crowd doesn't understand that this interaction with these two blind men was exactly why Jesus came, why Jesus put on humanity. This crowd, I would say, are the blind ones in this scenario. The crowd are the ones who are blind to what Jesus is all about, what Jesus' purpose here is. And that is where I find it challenging and difficult to try and put myself in those shoes. Because it's hard for me to think, yeah, I am absolutely blind in some of those same ways. How often do we have that same position where we are trying to silence those who are in need. It might not be this, uh, I shouldn't say might, it's not for us. We are not on this journey from Jericho to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. That's not where we're at in life. But perhaps it's the hustle and the bustle of our schedule that is so jam-packed with everything that we don't have any time to breathe otherwise. Or maybe it is that we are so exhausted by what we do throughout the day that when we get home and we have a chance, when we have free time, we're just so exhausted that we turn on the TV, that we put on Netflix, or we scroll through Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Instead of thinking about the ways that Jesus is showing up in our lives, the ways that Jesus is in our schedule. For us, it's not gonna be Probably two blind people who are sitting on the side of the road. It might be, but probably not. But maybe what it is, is a person who is trying to engage us in conversation, who needs personal connection. Maybe it's somebody who is asking for money for gas or asking for food or asking for whatever. And we are 
not necessarily trying to quiet people who are in need, but maybe it looks like us refusing to recognize that there are certain injustices in our legal system. Maybe it looks like sharing things on Facebook that we think are funny, but that really ostracize and, and make it seem like we don't care about certain groups of people. I would say that all of us fall into this category of the crowds. Maybe not always, but absolutely from time to time. What I hope we see here, though, is that following Jesus requires us to have an open mind. We cannot be people who claim to believe in a God who came down to earth as a human, was born as a baby, lived this perfect life, walked on water, performed all these miracles, died, and then came back to life. We can't, if we believe in a God like that, we cannot be closed-minded to anyone who doesn't think or act or talk like we do. That, those don't go hand in hand. We have to be open-minded to the people around us. Because if we're not, we are closed-minded like these crowds. We are simply this group of people that is wandering behind Jesus, hearing him teach these things, watching him perform these miracles, and then nothing is done like that doesn't change anything about our lives. In this story, I think that the the blind men are the ones who see Jesus and the way of Jesus far more clearly than anybody else. The people in the crowd are the ones that are truly blind on a deeper level. There's a a quote from uh, Augustine about, he says, our whole business then, brethren, in this life is to heal this eye of the heart whereby God may be seen. To heal the eye of the heart whereby God may be seen. We are trying to have this open mind about where God is at work, who God is at work in, and where are we blind to that fact? Who are we blind to? Do we even want to be unblinded if it means that we have to change something about ourselves? If it means we have to be uncomfortable? If it means we have to be responsible for something? Who are we blind to? What are we blind to? Do we want to be followers of Jesus or do we want to be members of this crowd? And as these people have to decide, do we want to be followers of Jesus if it means we have to go to the cross with him? I love the response of these men when the crowd tries to shush them. They just shout louder, right? They say, show us mercy, Lord, son of God, right? They are loud about it. They are going to overpower the the crowd that is trying to quiet them. And if that doesn't show faith in who Jesus is, I don't know what does. But like these blind men, Jesus doesn't just let the ideas or the opinions or the shushing of the crowd bother him or change who he is or change what he's about. His life and his ministry are defined by these types of interruptions and by these types of people, people who are, who are ostracized, who are on the outside, who are on the margins, who are helpless and in need and vulnerable. 
And I love how our translation, I don't, I don't always love how our translation puts things, but I love how our translation puts it here when it says that Jesus stopped in his tracks. Jesus stopped in his tracks when he heard these men, right? He, Jesus allowed this interruption to happen. He could have easily thought, oh, it's like I'm, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, right? I don't need to take care of this. But he stops in his tracks, And I'm not sure where it comes from, but there's a a quote that says, the cry of a beggar can stop God as he marches by if a crowd's indifference cannot stop that beggar's cry. Jesus is stopped in his tracks because the crowd has failed to help. And it it may not have been this exact group of people. It may not have been this, this healing of their sight. But this crowd, these people who are walking along behind Jesus, who are seeing him heal and teach and preach, proclaim good news about the kingdom of God, these types of people who have seen and heard what Jesus is all about have failed to do anything about it. They have failed to let that become action in their lives. And I love Jesus' question to these men, what do you want me to do for you? And you can read this in a real snarky way because Jesus is absolutely a snarky person. It's like, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you, right? But I hear it as Jesus giving them this opportunity to name their need. And I could tell you what, I'm gonna step aside here. I, a pet peeve of mine that I'm really working on, that Jesus is really challenging me on in this, a pet peeve of mine is when people just like bemoan and lament what's going on in their lives. And you can tell that they're, they're wanting to ask you for something, but then they don't actually ask it. Like I, I'm a straightforward enough person that like, like just get to the point, just ask me. Like I, I'm, I may be revealing too much about my inner dialogue here, but that like it, it bugs me sometimes when people are, are unable to just, get to the question. And in this story, I love how Jesus, Jesus isn't frustrated by that. At least he doesn't show that he's frustrated by that. Jesus asks that question for them. He flips it around. He doesn't wait for them to ask for help. He says, what, can, what do you need me to do? What do you want me to do for you? Because Jesus already knows their need, right? He knows that they're blind. He knows what ails them. He knows more than anybody what they need. But he really cuts to the chase and he says, what do you want me to do for you? We've talked about it every week of this sermon series, but compassion is something that moves beyond just this feeling or this emotion that we have. Compassion is then the action that accompanies that. And in verse 34, it says that Jesus had compassion on them. And then what does he do? He's then moved to action He touches their eyes and it says immediately they were healed and they followed him. His compassion leads him to this action. It's not good news of the healing that takes place or the two men whose lives are made some more normal, whatever that means, by now being able to see. The good news that I see in this passage is the good news 
is at the very end, those last three simple words, they followed him. And the language that Matthew uses here, it's the same language um, that separates the followers of Jesus from the crowds that go where Jesus goes, right? These two men are healed of their physical blindness, but their spiritual sight is what is celebrated. The good news is that Jesus invites them to follow him. And these men who are on the outside of society, right, who were outcast and marginalized, these men who were thought of as lesser than to a certain extent are now invited to follow Jesus. And I, I'm going to take another aside here to talk about what this really means. There's, there's a, a book that I just recently got that just came out recently um, by a man named John Mark Comer. It's called Practicing the Way. And I am slowly working through it because it's a lot of good stuff. I, I'm two chapters in. I highly recommend it. Uh, but what he talks about, this idea of practicing the way, of being a disciple of Jesus, of being a follower of Jesus... That idea is thought about in this time of uh, the relationship between a rabbi and a student. And a rabbi was the religious teacher of that day. They, um, they knew all the scriptures. They had a certain way of um, teaching and, and interpreting the word. But more than that, rabbis lived it. Right? They had a way of, of living that, that drew people to them because they were so connected and in tune with God. And so... For children who were about five years of age, they would go to school, they would learn the Hebrew scriptures, they would learn the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, and for six or seven years, they would just study and study and study those words. And by the time they were 12 or 13 years old, they would have those first five books entirely memorized. And from there there was kind of a, a split of like, if you were the best of the best, you had that down, you would continue on in your education. The rest of you, you know what? They, they would say, go back home, go learn your family trade, make a family, and hopefully they'll be rabbis. But the rest, the, the small group of, of uh, 12 and 13 year olds who had this down, who were the best of the best at that point, they would move on to this next level of education. And from ages 12 or 13 to age 17, they would then learn the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Hebrew scripture. And by the time they were 17, the best of the best would have this memorized. The, whole, the entire Old Testament as we have it now would be memorized. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. It's real good. Uh, so those people would then have this decision. Do they, are they the best of the best that they could move on or... Do they have the same command to just go home and make babies and maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe they'll, they'll be rabbis. But these students who have now memorized all this scripture, they would search for a rabbi. And the rabbis, again, they had um, this idea of a yoke, um, Y-O-K-E. And it was this way that they interpreted the Bible, this um, understanding that they have of it, this certain way of living based off of that understanding of it. And the students would then find their rabbi that they thought there was the best connection with, right? That they wanted to learn from. And they would then go to uh, basically beg this rabbi, please let me be your student. So the best of the best of the best are begging the rabbi to let 
them be a student of theirs. And so then the rabbi would run through this grueling interview of, you know, what's your prayer life like? What do you believe about the creation story? What do you, blah, blah, blah. Would ask them all these questions. And only then, if they're the best of the best of the best, and the rabbi thinks this would be a good pairing to have this as a student of mine, then they could finally become a follower of this rabbi, a, a student of this rabbi, an apprentice of this rabbi. So I say all of that to say only the best of the best of the best, this very, very exclusive number of people were invited to follow these rabbis. And once you followed a rabbi, you followed them 24 seven, you left behind whatever family trade you had, you left behind your family and you would follow this rabbi around as he taught and lived and went wherever he went. And that is this idea here that it talks about right at the very end that they followed him, that they followed Jesus. This passage begins and ends with this reference to following Jesus, right? It starts with this large crowd that is walking around behind Jesus. And then it ends with these two blind men having received healing and they follow Jesus. The good news is that Jesus as this rabbi doesn't withhold this for only the best of the best of the best of us. Jesus invites all people to be followers of him. Jesus invites these two blind men who were cast out by the other, the society of that day cast out by other religious leaders who were literally begging on the side of the street on the side of the road. Jesus invites them all to be his disciples, to be his apprentice. And this crowd that is following Jesus surely didn't love that. But what they experienced there, what they begrudgingly experienced there is a taste of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that is for all people, regardless of what your social status is, regardless of what your religious status is of the day. Jesus invites them into this strange new world where no one is excluded. They are invited into this new community that represents the kingdom of God right here and right now. This new community where people empathize with one another, who share in the suffering with one another. People who proclaim the kingdom of God, not just in word, but in deed, right? In compassion for one another. This miracle is done for those who are outsiders, those who are poor and needy and weak but perhaps the crowd here is the ones who really need this miracle, right? Matthew kind of holds these two blind men up as examples of Christ's followers. Jesus invites these men to follow him. They are welcomed into following him to being his disciples, even as it leads to the cross. And what's praised in this story is not being one of the crowd, right? We don't just read this story and think that, yeah, okay, cool, good job, Jesus. And I'm still justified in saying no to the person that asks me for whatever. Or, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to invite these people over to my house because they're dirty and my house is clean and I don't want them to mess it up. What's praised in this story 
is these men are now sold out on Jesus. These are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. Matthew's not pointing to our role as members of the crowd, but our role as disciples of Jesus. And when we are committed to being these true disciples of Jesus, we begin to see more clearly these opportunities, these holy interruptions, these opportunities to show compassion and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And this is where this becomes an invitation to all of us. Are we going to be these members of the crowd or are we going to be followers of Jesus? Matthew invites us to identify with these blind men calling out to Jesus, desiring to be healed of our deep blindness that we have to recognize that and to admit it to ourselves. But what does it mean to be ruled by the way of Jesus, to be true disciples and followers and apprentices of Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus, to be a follower and not just one of the crowd? Read your Bible and pray. Good night. No, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Following Jesus is far more than that, right? It, it absolutely is reading your Bible and praying, but following Jesus is far more than that. It's a lifelong commitment to, as in, in the book, Practicing the Way, um, he talks about being a disciple is being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing as he did. And that's what it was for this rabbi-student relationship. You would follow your rabbi, you would be with him, right, 24-7, as you were around him more, learning from him more, watching how he interacted with people, how he responded in certain ways, you would then become more like him. And after a while, then you would become like him and be doing what he did, and then you yourself would become a rabbi. Be with him, become like him, do as he did. That is what it means to, as, as John Mark Comer uh, believes it to be more of an accurate representation of this word, it, apprenticeship of Jesus. To apprentice, right? When you are an apprentice under a master, you learn from that master. You, you begin to understand more about what this job and this this whole identity requires, and then you eventually become that, and then you train up others. Be being with your rabbi, becoming like your rabbi, doing what your rabbi did, and specifically here with Jesus, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. It's what the crowds never fully understood here. But it's what these blind men and many more, especially in these stories of Jesus healing people, it's, it often says that they begin following him. It's what they understand about this kingdom of God that Jesus is giving them tastes of here and there that he is not just teaching about, but that he is living about. As we follow Jesus, as we spend more time with him and become more like him, we start to do what he did, what he does more and more often. And in this story, it's pretty obvious that this crowd that was with Jesus, they followed him to this spot, Right? And maybe some of them were following him closely enough to start to kind of maybe become more like him. But, but the text, I would say, is, is kind of pointing to this idea that they did not do as he did, right? These men, they tried to quiet these men and shush them and continue on their way. Compassion 
has been evident in all of Jesus's healing ministry, in all of his teaching and preaching ministry, in his proclamation of the kingdom of God that is being made real. And compassion is the foundation of Jesus's life. And so the longer you are with Jesus, you become more like Jesus, you become more compassionate, and you do as he did. You begin living in the world around you as a more compassionate person. And in this story, in front of this crowd, it's no different, right? Jesus exemplifies this compassion that is the foundation of his life. And I, I think it, it happens in three ways. If you want three things to write down, you note takers, here they are. Jesus shows compassion in his stopping. Stopping in his tracks. These holy interruptions, right? He shows compassion in his stopping. May we be unafraid to stop what we are doing or what we think is important in order to be available to those who are in need. The second one, Jesus shows compassion in his engagement. He doesn't just stop in his tracks and be like, boom, your sight is back and carry on, right? He stops, he engages them, he asks them questions. So as followers of Jesus, may we seek to step through the noise of our own discomfort or our own fear and be willing to ask, what do you need me to do? And the third thing, Jesus shows compassion in his healing. He helps when possible, when allowed, when he is able to help. May we surrender all that we have and all that we are so that Jesus would introduce those opportunities for us that when, when we see those opportunities, we would be unhindered in saying, yes, I will reach out. I will help when possible. Jesus's invitation is for all of us to come to him, all of us to have our deepest needs met, to ask for this spiritual healing of our blindness so that we can continue to be with him, become like him, and do as he did to show this compassion, to show this inbreaking of the kingdom of God in our world. This journey of following Jesus, of becoming a disciple, of being an apprentice, is to join Jesus in this way of life that is defined by his compassion, that is embodied compassion. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the example that Jesus was of embodying this compassion. And God, that, that he was more than an example, that he was a rabbi, that he was one to follow, one that we can know and trust to the point that we can be with him and become like him and do as he did. God, may all of us Surrender to you, become followers of you, not just faces in the crowd, so that this world might be a compassionate, more compassionate place because of us, because of you. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing this final song? Uh-huh.